Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is The Light Has Come, subtitle Arise and Shine. Now, some of you are going to recognize that as coming from one of the songs that the choir is singing for the Christmas program. It comes from a verse in Isaiah that we'll touch on a little bit later here this morning. But arise and shine, the light has come. That should be the response to the recognition that the light is here. The light is available. And we'll, again, look at that later. But as you think about words that have, they contrast, they have opposite meanings. They're opposite in their interpretation. You think about, there's a fancy grammatical word for that. It's called to be an antonym. Antonyms are, again, these words that have contrasting or opposite meanings. Now, a great example of an antonym would be light and darkness. Now, you could say, well, they're not exactly opposites because there are degrees of both. But if you think about it, complete darkness cannot exist in light's presence. So if you're talking about complete darkness in contrast to light, it, complete darkness can only exist in the absence of any light. Even a little bit of light takes what would be darkness, complete darkness, and eradicates that or drives it away. And now you're thinking about the Bible being a book of contrast. The Bible con- consistently finds contrasts that would be used to focus on maybe words that would describe God and then the opposite of that. Uh, things that would be used to are associated with God himself, and in this case, we'd have light and dark. So the contrast is being made here from life and death, light and darkness. You can say being in Adam, being in Christ, these are things that are contrasting to one another. So you think about why would the Bible use these things? Well, because it's the best way to communicate truth. And as you're thinking about God revealing himself, he wanted human beings to realize that he is a God that is associated with light, This is, light is an association, is a quality of God himself. It's, God is a God of life, he's a God of truth, he's a God of life, and light is one of those words that stands in a stark contrast to what is dark. So as you think about the Bible regularly associating darkness with the things that are in opposition to or are in rebellion against God, then naturally it uses light to represent God himself. God's truth, God's life. And so as you look at those two terms, one of them is pretty obviously not associated with God. You think about darkness. My dad has a a funny saying where he says, nothing good happens after seven o'clock. But oftentimes you, you talk about darkness, nighttime. And isn't it true that nighttime has consistently been associated with things that are, un- are not positive, things that are not good? There's something actually f- physiologically that is connected to poor behavior and the cover of darkness, this sense that I could get away with it. It's it kind of very similar to even a mob mentality where when as soon as the group of individuals has a sense that there's no one to stop them, there's no authority, there's no accountability anymore. Then they act out in all kinds of different ways. And there's something about a cloak of darkness that leads people to have this perception that now anything goes. And isn't that something that you've all probably experienced at some point in your life where the the light of day has a way of almost having a, a cleansing effect or a way of almost eliminating, eradicating some of that behavior, some of that thinking, some of that, some of that those actions and that mentality that was coming out just purely in association with the darkness. Now you think about if God is light, and we're going to see that as we think about the light has come, it starts with the fact that God's very character is light, that he's the source of physical light, he's the source of spiritual light. 
But if God is light, and he is, then the birth of Jesus illuminated the world like never before, as you think about the light has come, if God is the source of light and then God becomes man in the form of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, then we have the world being illuminated by his entrance into the world. And it's not to say that God's truth or God's light hadn't been available, but not like this. Not, not in a way where God becomes man. God actually comes and pitches his tent or he, he tents among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, God dwelling with us. It's a unique time in a sense like that where God is going to actually be taking human form and being on earth for 33 plus years. And so you're thinking about Jesus. His birth illuminated the world like never before. So this morning what I wanted to do is to look at some biblical truth regarding God's light, but especially those relating to Jesus and especially some of those relating to Jesus and his birth. And so we think about this this morning. We start off with a fundamental principle. God is light. So if the light has come, we have to first describe or think about where does light even come from? Well, God is light. It describes his very character of goodness, holiness, and righteousness. This is a description of God himself. God is light. Now, of course, we're going to get to how he's the source of light, but he is light. It's synonymous with his very character that he would be light. Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be doing a fair amount of page turning this morning. There's quite a number of different passages that will bring this out. So as we're coming into the holiday season, we try to, I try to normally do at least a couple of messages that would be really related to the birth of Christ, the reason for the season, reminding us that Christmas cannot exist without Christ in it. It's in the name. We need to remember that Christmas is all about him. And as you think about all about him, then it's all about his person and his work. What has he done for us ultimately? Why did he come? And he came to rescue, redeem, reconcile, make us right with God, give us access to God, has the final perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First John chapter 1 verse 5 though is this very clear statement that says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. So you think about this apostolic witness. John is one of the apostles. He's now saying this is the message that we heard from him. We didn't make this up. We're continuing to preach. And as, as John is writing this, these are some of the latest books that are written in the New Testament canon of Scripture. And so as he's writing, this might be as late as 90, I think. And so as you're thinking about the, the amount of time that has gone by, that's roughly 60 years, 50 to 60 years after Christ's Death. So there's been a lot of growth, a lot of spiritual understanding, a lot of additional revelation that God has, ma- has made through the apostles in terms of the canon of Scripture even, or their understanding of Scripture. So he's saying, this is the message though, and he's thinking back all the way to this time where he was a first person witness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. But we heard this from him, now we're declaring it to you, and what is he saying? That God is light. You need to understand this. This is a foundational truth. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, as you're thinking about God and how he is contrast to us as human beings, sinful, flawed human beings, going through a world that is broken, experiencing the brokenness of sin in our own lives, we can't relate to this. We can relate to it only in the measure that at times... 
as we're focused and looking, on, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as, at, at times as we're yielded vessels in his hand, as God, and God is able to work through the power of his spirit that lives inside of us, he's able to work in us to produce a way of living that is in, completely foreign to us in those moments, you could say. We're associating with the light. We're walking the light. We'll talk about that in a a moment, a little bit further in our message here this morning. So we can relate to it only in a sense and only vicariously as God works in and through us to shine his light through us. But that's not true about God. God is said to be light. God is light. You could put an equal sign there. God equals light, just like it says God is love. God equals love. These are, these are not things that describe him, in a, in a sense. They are things that he is. They make up his very character, his very nature. So God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And the truth is, even a regenerated Christian who has put their faith in Jesus Christ has had the Spirit of God make them alive, pass them from death to life, indwell them now with his very Spirit, giving them a new nature. Even that individual is not freed from the presence of sin, not the presence of sin internally in terms of the sin nature or the, the residue of who we were in Adam, that influence that is trying to pull us in a direction that opposes God, that influence that is me first all of the time, if you want to sort of describe what is the sin nature is that it's that part of man that is saying and screaming usually not usually whispering but screaming me first me first me first now raise your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about it's a good thing you chose honesty this morning that's good that's good that's growth right there that's growth me first see we're not free from the very presence of sin, but one day we will be. We'll be glorified. We'll be freed from the very presence of sin. That, in addition to the fact that heaven is where Jesus is, our Savior, the one that we've hopefully been yearning to to be with, that's where he is. What makes heaven so special isn't that it's got streets of gold. Okay, that's that's sort of an immature view of heaven. Like, what are you going to do with it anyway? Just curiosity. Okay, you're never going to hunger again. You're never going to thirst again. You're never going to have any need or want or lack anything. So all of the shininess of, of heaven, that's not what makes heaven great. What makes heaven great is that that's where he is. And another thing that makes it great is that's where everybody who's put their faith in him is. That's where the great reunion in the sky will be. You looking forward to that? How many have gone before us, right? And hopefully we're still walking in their faithful steps. Hopefully we're still being the kind of people that God could look at us and say, I can use that not because that person is so wonderful, but because I'm so wonderful and that person is so humble. It's not because you're so wonderful, it's because you're so humble that you can see, I am nothing, but if I stay connected to the vine and allow Jesus Christ to work through the power of his spirit through me, then I can leave behind a witness, a legacy, a heritage, you see it in the name of our church. It was a play on words. Yes, the church is on Heritage Trail. That's what it was to identify the location of the church, but it was also intended to identify the idea of having a heritage, a godly heritage, that may all who come behind us find us faithful. Now, that won't happen by just trying real hard, but by God's grace, that could progressively be true of us. So we can't relate to this aspect of God, though. 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's, it's describing his very character again of goodness, holiness, and righteousness. He wants that to progressively be true in our lives. Now the second point is you're talking about we're building up to the light has come. God is light, so we start with that. Then we move to God is the source of light. God is the source of light. Now, God is the source of all light. He's the source of all light, literally. And he's the source of all light, figuratively. So, let's start with the literal part of it. By literally, we mean physical light. And as you think about, well, what's the importance of light? Why would, why would God identify as light, equal to light? And why would God create light? Why would God be the source of light? And it's because physical light is necessary for physical life. Now, those words sound so simple, similar, it's easy to feel like I'm repeating myself there. Physical light is necessary for physical life. That's why light and life go together so much in the Bible. Now, that's true in the physical world. Without light, there would be no photosynthesis. Man, I wished I had never been able to say that word again. Photosynthesis. Say it slower. If you're struggling with words, friends, just slow down a little bit. Photosynthesis. Okay, if there was no light, there would be none of that. Okay? None of that from plants to give off what? Oxygen that's necessary for humanity's survival. This isn't just a thing that is an unnecessary but fun or useful or friendly thing to have in life that we'd actually have physical light. Physical light is necessary for physical life. And so you think about God knowing exactly he's the creator God and he's a perfect God who has no flaws in his plans. Think about that. God doesn't make mistakes. Now, everything that you've endured in your life was not directed by God. It was allowed by God in his sovereignty, but it wasn't directed by God. God allows the fallout to take place of the decisions of man to live and operate in rejection and rebellion against him. The world is cursed by sin. The physical creation is cursed by sin. Our bodies, our physical bodies are cursed by sin. We live in a sin-cursed world full of sinners controlled by, at the, at the present, the father of all lies, Satan himself. And so in that sense, as God allows those decisions and those consequences to play out, we have lived through and we've experienced life in a way that is less than perfect, in a way that is tainted. And so you're thinking about God and his creative work. God, he understands that there are things that go on that are less than ideal, but I allow them, but yet I provide and I undertake even in the face of those circumstances, I undertake in those circumstances so that people would be able to respond to me, that they'd be able to live in, in relation to me, they would be able to live in dependence on me, and they would be able to enjoy an abundant life. I still provide for that even in the face of some of those things that are lacking. So you think about the creator God. God created everything perfectly. There was nothing lacking. He doesn't make mistakes. That includes you. You're not a mistake. Now, God wants to work in your life. Your life isn't perfect, but you're not a mistake. God, in terms of what he created, he didn't make any mistakes. Now, you look at the world and you say, but there's all kinds of flaws in it. Didn't God make a mistake? No. God knew that love meant to allow people choice. You can't say that you love somebody, but then to force your love on them, to force them to do your will. That's not love. 
Even, even a, a, a young person, even a toddler, the young people that were up here singing this morning, even they, even they realize that if you make somebody do what you want, that's not love. Now, in a sense, you could say it is love in terms of a parent protecting or caring for their child. You could say that's a reflection of love to not allow a toddler to do whatever they want. But when we get to an age where uh, decisions can be made, people are in an age of accountability, even in a sense where they can be even at making adult decisions, is it love to say, I'm going to force you to respond to me a certain way? Well, that's, that wouldn't be love at all. So to have genuine love or real love, you would have to have choice involved in that, and God determined to make it that way. So in a sense, I was just thinking about this as you think about anything that has been perverted by sin. That doesn't mean that the thing itself was imperfect. Originally, it was created by God. Satan can't create. Do you realize that? Satan, Satan is sort of a one-trick pony in a sense. He can deceive, he can manipulate, he can utilize things to advance his purpose, which is nothing more than rebellion and rejection against God, but Satan doesn't have the capacity for creation. God is the creator. We don't give Satan anything. That's why anything that God has made, it's not evil just by virtue of existing. God is the creator. He's the one who made it good. Just because Satan has used it for something evil doesn't mean that it's now evil. That was his evil intentions. You could say what he's done with it is bad, but it doesn't make the underlying thing bad, just like we're talking about even meat that was offered to idols. You can read up on on that in some of Paul's writing as he's talking about the thing itself, the meat itself, obviously that was good. It was created by God. Just because Satan utilized it in something impure doesn't mean that the meat itself is no good. It's about the mentality behind it. We're not going to get through this if I keep getting into this kind of stuff. All right, God created physical light. We'll just, I'll put it up here on the screen. We won't turn here. This is from the very beginning. By the third verse of the Bible, you talk about God and how important light is. So then God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's as simple as it was. An all-powerful God could speak the world into existence. He said, I don't accept that. Okay. That's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but that's your opinion. The truth is, though, it's easier to believe that than it is to believe that a whole bunch of things were swimming around in a pool of nothingness, and somehow they all came together to make things as complicated and as intricate and as delicate as the creation around us. The truth is that even if you could manipulate it so that it would have a favorable chance of success and you were to take, for example, uh, let's just use an example. Creation, if you look at something and it looks like it, it, it demonstrates that there's a design to it, that it's been created, that it... it demands then that there be a designer or that there be a creator. You can't look at anything that has very intentional function to it. It works in a way that is unbelievable as you think about each part doing its part to create a complex whole. And the complex whole serves some very specific purpose and that there's even pieces along the way that could, are irreducible minimums where you couldn't even take those things out of the equation and the thing would still exist. It needs every one of those parts in order to even function as it is. So they can't be developed piecemeal. They have to all exist to begin with and be put together in a very specific way for it to function as it was t intended. And so if you're ultimately going to rely on, we're just going to throw a whole bunch of chance at it, we're going to throw a whole bunch of time at it, and we're going to believe that somehow that happened... Even though, even those in the secular world would say, we, we can't explain this. 
We can't explain how there's such obvious design to creation and there's so many things that couldn't be eliminated and for, it to, for things to even be the way that they are, but we're still gonna accept this, why? We're so desperate to find an alternative, why? Because we're so focused on rejecting the truth that God has already presented, which is that I created this. Now think about it, pick something, pick a watch. This isn't even high technology here, but pick a, pick a watch. You're like, well, it's higher than the technology I'm wearing. Okay, all right, pick a watch, though. You say there's, just guessing here, let's pick a number, 969 parts to this watch. Okay, they all have a very specific function, though, and have to come together collectively to make this watch function as it's intended to function. Now, even assuming that each one of those parts could have individually been created and then be put together in this way, Let's just say that we have all the parts. If you took all those parts and you threw them into a five-gallon bucket, you filled the bucket with water, and then you put a drill in there that was plugged into an infinite power supply, and you put a little bit of a mixer at the end of the drill on a, on a wand of some kind so that it was stirring up the water, you could turn that on and walk away, and you're saying, you have no way to prove this, Pastor. I'm saying this confidently, that in a billion years, all of those parts wouldn't have come together to make a watch. You say, well, that's just because you didn't give it enough time. A billion years isn't enough. Everyone knows it would take three billion years. <laughs> My point is the Bible doesn't stutter when it speaks. And some of you are like, you know what? Can you believe that you're a sinner who needed a savior, that Jesus Christ was the solution to pay for your sins, that he died in your place, he paid your debt. When he died on Calvary and cried out, it is finished, can you believe that it was finished and your sin debt penalty for all time was satisfied by his work on your behalf through no works of your, on, on your part, through no help on your part, just through faith alone in what he had done? Can you believe that and still be struggle with accepting what, you, what God says about creation here in Genesis chapter one? Yes. I think the answer is yes. But you're gonna have a lot of problems with the Bible if you wanna throw out the first chapters of the Bible. That was another message. Again, we're into several different messages here this morning. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. You see, there's this division, even physically. In the physical realm, there's this division between light and darkness. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Evening and morning, referring to one 24-hour literal day. That's our perspective here, though not shared by everyone. Now, you think about God being the source of light. He was the source of light physically. I didn't mean to dwell on that as long as we did this morning. But he's also the source of spiritual light. And this, the, this is the greater impact of the coming of Jesus to the world as you think about the light has come. Spiritual light, just like physical light, light is necessary for spiritual life. So just like physical light is necessary for physical life, spiritual light is necessary for spiritual life. And it's sourced exclusively in God. Look at Psalm 27 verse 1 here. We'll have some Old Testament passages here that I think really pulled out this idea well. And this is, of course, a psalmist. This is David talking. The Lord is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. There we have again, life connected with light. God provides light. 
The, the light is found in God himself, in his truth, and in the life that he offers. That's what we mean when we're talking about God's light, especially in a spiritual sense. Of whom shall I be afraid? If the Lord is with me, who can stand against me is sort of the idea there. A little few psalms later, Psalm 36, 9. For with you, now again reference to God, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So it's only because of God's life when I talk about the exclusivity of God being the source of spiritual light and thus spiritual life, it comes, in God, it comes from God alone. It's only because of his light that we're able to see that our eyes can be illuminated. For with you, though, is the fountain of life. Again, they're connected together. Here we have David speaking, in, recorded in 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine: For you are my lamp, a source of light, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. By default, we're in darkness. We need the light that only God can provide. And again, we're talking about God's light in terms of God himself being light, God's truth and God's life that he offers in terms of spiritual life. Now, if we're getting into more of the theme of the, the message here, the light has come, Christ's birth is not what we're talking about. And Christ's birth was announced by and accompanied by great light. I think that is intended to be symbolic but it's also something that was intentional on the part of God. That's my belief. This wasn't accidental because life, again, is associated with light. The source of that light is God, just as the source of life is God, but most more directly, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, which we'll get at in a second. Now, how about Christ's birth being announced by light? It's pretty fitting given the significance of his birth, given how Jesus illuminated the world in a way that the world had never seen before. But how about Luke 2, 8 through, now, 8 through 9. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Most of you are familiar with the Christ, Christmas story here. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord, the light of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Now, we've seen some pictures of this. We've seen depictions of this, but the sky just illuminated like the sun. You see, to come into God's presence is to be enlightened. Literally, in terms of physically and spiritually. You say, what do you mean by literally? Because God, I, light itself is emanating from God in a sense. When Moses went into God's presence, do you recall the story where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he spends time with God on Mount Sinai receiving the, the Ten Commandments for the, the nation of Israel? Following, you remember the story? What happens when he comes back? He's physically glowing. When he goes into God's pre presence, even in the, the newly erected tabernacle, when he comes out of God's presence, he's glowing to the point where Remember the people say, can you cover up your face? It's too bright. You're, you're reflecting God too, great, too, too brightly in our lives. Now think of that. That might have been literally true where they're like, this predates the day of sunglasses. Maybe literally that was true, but maybe it was convicting to them to see God's light radiating off of Moses' face. How many of you have seen that happen in your own lives more figuratively, that as you're on fire for the Lord, 
as you're just glowing with Jesus, so to speak, I hope you know what I'm talking about. You're having a time where you're responding to what God is trying to show you and do in your life to the point where it's obvious to everybody around you. What do some of them say? Could you quit glowing so brightly? I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. Stop talking to me about Jesus. Stop bringing up Bible verses to me. I once had a nun at St. Scholastica when I was in college tell me that. I really don't want to talk about Jesus anymore. (laughs) Kind of sad. Here's somebody who had good intentions. I think she meant well. In a sense, you could say she'd given her whole life to matters of faith. But now she's telling me, a, a student who wants to talk to her about Jesus and his love for her, she doesn't want to hear about it. And she said, quote, I put those matters to rest when I was younger. They say cover up. But here we have a perfect example here of physically there was light at Christ's birth announcement. Here's another passage that talks about this light in the sky. There's a lot of ideas about what it was exactly. The Christmas star, some refer to it as. What exactly was it? Was it a natural phenomenon? Was it a supernatural phenomenon? There's whole movies, whole books that have been written about this. You don't have a lot to go off of. You're going to have to go off of just pretty limited passages of Scripture about it. But Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Now what brought them to Jerusalem? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How did they know that? Well, they say, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they followed a star. They, they went in the direction of a star that they had not seen before. Somehow, they had enough information that would lead them to recognize that this is the, prophet, the prophesied birth of the, the Savior or the Messiah. So you could dig into that a little bit more. Pretty fascinating, though, that Christ's birth was announced by and accompanied by great light. Now we get into more of the heart of this. Jesus brought God's light to the world in a more personal way than ever before. In a more personal way than ever before. And here's some of the verses relating to this. Emmanuel, God with us. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I physically am here bringing God's light because I am God incarnate to the world. He goes on to say in John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm actually illuminating the world while I'm here, although in the context, Jesus is going to heal a man blind from birth. In the context, he's saying, he's hinting at the idea that he won't always be there, but while he is there, he's in the business of illuminating the world. Now, think about a man who is blind from birth. Why was that detail included there in John 9? We covered this at the men's Bible study here on Friday. Well, some of that would be speculation, but if he was blind from birth, what does that mean? He had never seen light at all. All he'd ever known is darkness. Isn't that a great metaphor for the world without Christ? A world without God? A a world without faith? They've never even seen 
the light. All they know is darkness, and Jesus is in the business of bringing to light or enlightening the eyes of one who had never seen anything else but darkness. Now, here's another passage about Jesus bringing light to the world in a very personal way. Now, this is written about Jesus traveling to a specific region as fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So in Matthew 4, 16, it says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, he's talking about a specific place that now the light has come. The people were sitting in darkness, but now they've seen a great light. And those who were in that region, they were effectively in the shadow of death. But now what has happened? The light has come. The light has dawned. The light that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you ask yourself, in what sense did Christ bring light to the world? The light has dawned. In what sense is Jesus the light of the world? I am the light of the world. In, in what sense is that true? Where he's saying, while I am here, I am the light of the world. Well, in the sense that, the spiritual sense of it, the light metaphor metaphor here, it speaks of this spiritual sense of the light of Jesus Christ and his truth, the light of his word, the light of eternal life that he offers. So there's more than one aspect to it, but light in the sense of truth that he brought, light in the sense of his word that I guess is a collection of that truth, but light in the sense then of eternal life that he offers those two things, to, those three things together. Now in declaring himself to be the light of the world, Jesus was claiming that he is the exclusive source of spiritual light. No other source of spiritual truth is available to mankind. See, God is the source of light, God is the source of truth, God is the source of life, and Jesus was the manifestation of that on planet earth in terms of having become Emmanuel, God with us, pitched his tent among us. So that's what made him unique, and we're going to have another lesson next week about that, love incarnate, as God actually brought his love or demonstrated his love through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus brought God's light to the world in a more personal way than ever before, so what? Well, so what? The problem, the reason that that was so important is man was in desperate need of spiritual light. Man is hopeless without God's light. And so Jesus bringing that light in such a personal, personal, tangible, in real way, in, in such a clear way, that was exactly what man needed. You look at John chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered and said, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. We need the light. We need physical light, but he's, this is a metaphor for spiritual light. You're not stumbling because you see the light. Now this is, again, the light in a, in a worldly sense, the light of the sun, the light of the stars, those types of things. But if one walks in the night... He stumbles because the light is not in him. Man needs light. Man is hopeless without it. Hopeless in terms of, this is pr primarily in context of Christ, uh, Christian living, walk, the walk of faith in terms of practical sanctification or progressive sanctification, the growth over time of a believer into a more be mature, uh, immature believer into a more mature believer. We call that sanctification or progressive sanctification. 
You need God's light in order to grow, in order to walk in a way that would please God. But that's also, of course, true of justification in the sense of a sinner ever being reconciled to a holy and righteous God or ever being put in a right standing with a holy and righteous God. You need the light that God can provide, provided through the person of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what man needs. Man is hopeless and helpless and hellbound without the light of Jesus Christ. So you think about that's man's problem, but man has, sorry, that's man's need, but man's problem is that although man has that need, man doesn't even recognize that they have that problem. See, man is in desperate need of spiritual light, but mankind naturally opposes, rebels against, and rejects God's light. That's not a good combination. If man desperately needs light, but they're also naturally opposing the light, rejecting the light, rebelling against God's light, that's a real problem problem. That's what prevents people from being saved. See, John 1, 5 says, and the light shines in the darkness. What light? The light, God's light. Manifest in what? Manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That light is shining into the darkness, but what? The darkness did not comprehend it. That's the natural default of man, that they're blind to the light of God. That's why John 3, 19, a few verses after the most famous verse in the Bible, you know this one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life we have right here. Everlasting life, the source of life found in Jesus. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, Jesus, could be saved now here's the punchline, he who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Next verse, John three nineteen, right here, and this is the condemnation. This is the sad story, I guess is how I would even put that to some extent. This is the tragedy. This is what is condemning man, that the light has come into the world, how? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's a problem. You see, man has this desperate need. Sadly, mankind naturally opposes it and rejects it. But the truth is that God's light, the light of Jesus, is the direct link to the life that is made available by God, especially as we're talking about spiritual life, eternal, everlasting, never-ending spiritual light. You see, life. You see, the light that Jesus provided is directly linked to the life he made available or the life that he made possible. We see this in John 1, 4. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. They're interchangeable. They're connected so closely here. You can't have life without the light of God's truth, without the light of Jesus, without understanding and recognition of who Jesus is and what he has done for a lost and dying world. John 8, 12b, the back part of that verse, remember the first part said, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Then he goes on to say this, he who follows me, shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Light and life. He comes to illuminate and offer light 
to the darkened eyes of those who do not know the truth, do not know God's truth. And as Jesus is lifted up, he's made bigger. As God is drawing all men to himself and he's exalting Jesus Christ, which is what we're supposed to be helping to do as God works in our life, making Jesus Christ bigger. The idea is shining and magnifying and praising and glorifying, putting the spotlight on Jesus Christ so, so that what? so that it could stand out from the darkness so that those still in the darkness could look to the light of Jesus and respond to the life-saving message of Jesus and what he's done for a lost and dying world. The hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. The light of life. So you're thinking about how this life that Jesus made available is directly tied to him illuminating or or bringing light to the world. You see, the life that Christ offers is accessed by believing in the person and work of Jesus. See, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Now he's talking about somebody who has already believed in him. That person who then is letting the Lord lead and direct in his life, that person continues then to walk in light. Their path is illuminated. That's not talking anymore more about first tense, a point in time, salvation for, where one goes from darkness to light, is translated from death until, into life, is made alive again. Not again, is made alive for the first time. Spiritually, I say again, I guess, physically you were made alive at a point in time, but at a point in time you're spiritually made alive, regenerated. That happens once. So he's not, he's not talking about that. You were formally identified with Adam, with your own sinfulness, with the sin that is associated with Adam and rejection and rebellion against Jesus Christ. That's how you were born. See, Romans says, Paul says, by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death came with sin. Spiritual death, spiritual separation from God on account of God being perfectly holy and righteous. So by one man, Adam, that's our, our first sinner, so sin came into the world. Now you say, well, didn't Eve sin first? Well, Adam's the one who is held out. Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin. But then what happened? Death then spread to all men because all sinned. So we're sinners by, we come by it honestly in the sense of we're sinners by birth, but we're sinners by choice. We choose sin. And that causes us to be estranged from God. So in a sense, we're born into darkness, We're not alive. We're dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, to be separated from God. That's the bad news. That's the problem that all men face because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All of our works of righteousness are filthy rags, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's man's natural disposition. No, friends. People aren't inherently good. So this is my condition. This is my problem that I'm in. And at a point in time, I have to have that darkness illuminated by the light of Jesus Christ, which occurs the moment that I put my faith in what Jesus Christ has already done for me. Now I'm enlightened. Then I have life for the very first time. As God's light shines into my life through the gospel message, the message of how God is in the business of rescuing people who are hopeless and helpless and hellbound. That's where I was. I respond to this light that is shining into the whole world. It's shining into my life. It's shining and available for all to respond to this message of here's the light of Jesus. And it gives life. 
It offers life. This message of light that's shining into my darkness, it could give me life. Now I have to respond to that message though. The message is that Jesus Christ paid all of my sin debt penalty on the cross and he offers life to me if I would only just believe in what Jesus did for me. That moment now, I come out of the darkness, I'm positionally now identified in the light of Jesus Christ. Now am I always walking in the light? No. Am I always doing what's right? No. But I'm identified now positionally once and for all through a spiritual new birth in Jesus Christ and in his light. Now as I go through my day though, Does that mean I'm always choosing to practically as a manner of living the way my thinking is going and then the behavior that comes from my thinking? Am I always walking in the light? Am I always living life in a way that would be consistent with the light of God or the light of Jesus? And the answer is no. But I'm still positionally identified as being in the light as Jesus Christ is the light of the world. I'm identified in him because I'm standing in his shoes because I'm clothed in his righteousness. It's all about Jesus doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. But as you're thinking about even this verse, he who follows me, we're not talking about original salvation here, justification, we're talking about sanctification. As I'm following Jesus in my light, I'm not in those moments walking in the darkness. In those moments, I have the light of life as a practical reality in my life. Now, I never lost and never could lose the light that I have and the life that I have through my position, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, apart from human works, in the work of Jesus Christ, my standing in Christ. I, don't, I can't ever lose that. But is this true at any moment in time? That's, that's the question. Is that true at that particular moment in my life? Now, how do I get a hold of it, though, for the first time? How is that life accessed? It's accessed by believing. And in case you don't know this, John talks about this over a hundred times in the book of John, that the only way that I can access the life and the light of Jesus is through believing. Now, it says this very clearly. He who believes. There's, there's no confusion here. He who believes in the Son. Who's the Son? Jesus Christ. Believes what about the Son? That he died for our sin penalty. He paid it in full. He who believes in the Son has, not might have, has as a present possession everlasting life. Friends, it couldn't be everlasting if it could be lost. The Bible uses the words that were intended by God because he's the one who wrote it. Has as a present possession everlasting life. It says it right here. Have, you will have everlasting life. It couldn't be everlasting if what God really meant is you would have it temporarily until you messed up. Until you quit being faithful. Until you quit jumping through the certain hoops. As long as you were doing X, Y, and Z. Everlasting means everlasting, meaning it has no end. You couldn't work to get it. You can't work to keep it. You have it. Everlasting life. But he who does not believe. Are there people who do not believe? Yeah, there are people who do not believe. They do not believe what? They do not believe the Son. That person shall not see life. Not might not see life, shall not see life. Why? Because they've rejected the only source of light and life there is, which is Jesus. What instead are they facing? They're facing the wrath of God that is abiding on them. Why? Because their sin hasn't been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
Christ's payment for their sin has been made, but it hasn't been appropriated. It hasn't been applied to their account. They didn't put the blood on the doorposts. And so the angel of death can't pass over. There's no condemnation to them who are in Christ. Because of all of our iniquity and trespasses was placed on Jesus Christ and satisfied so God isn't looking at us through an eye of wrath anymore or an eye of condemnation. He's looking at us as children through the eyes of a father and the eyes of love. That's how God is looking at us. That's how he's disposed towards me. Not some of the time, all of the time. You mean even when I'm being a little stinker? Yeah, even when I'm being a stinker. Even when I'm pulling in the wrong direction? Yes, even then. All of the time. Because it was never about me. It was never about my faithfulness. It was about God's faithful character and how he never fails, how he's always good, how he's always loving, how he's always life, how he's always light, and he never changes, not ever, not once, and he never will. That's what gives us hope, friends. We're not putting the hope in ourselves. If you're being honest, it can take a moment to be honest about that. You'd say, good Lord, I do not want to be in a position where I'm putting my confidence in me. I want to put my confidence in you, Lord. You're the good God. Not me. Man, I have a way of getting off track here. Jesus provided the light, but it's directly linked to the life that we can have through faith alone in his son. Now we keep moving here and we look at how God wants believers to be witnesses to his light. Okay, so we, we look at how God is light. God is the source of light. Christ's birth was announced by and accompanied by great light. Jesus brought God's light to the world in a more personal way than ever before as he pitched his tent among us. Man is in desperate need of spiritual light and they're hopeless without it. Mankind naturally opposes that light but the light of, and how the light of Jesus provides is directly linked to the life that he made available and possible. But now God wants believers, those who have put their faith, he who believes in the Son and has that life, he now wants us to be witnesses to his light. Now, here's a passage about Jesus Christ's cousin named John. Some refer to him as John the Baptist or the John the one who baptized. But this is John who is Jesus' cousin. This is said about him, but it's applicable to us. There was a man sent from God, John 1, 6 through 8, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Bear witness of the light. Who is the light? Jesus. That all through him might believe. What was God's desire? God's desire was that all, not some, all through him might believe. That's a problem verse right there for some who don't believe it was all. That all through him might believe. That was God's desire. If he had already determined that that wasn't possible, he couldn't say this. That all through him might believe. He was not that light. He was not that light. But he was sent to bear witness of that light. This is your mission too, friends. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, man, I just go through the motions every day. I don't even know why I'm here. This is why you are here if you are a believer to bear witness to the light. To bear witness to the light. So there's one example. 
of what your purpose is as a believer as it relates to the light of Jesus. Jesus brought the light, now he wants you to bear witness to the light because he is the light. There's another way of saying that. He wants you to be witnesses to his light, but he wants believers to shine as lights. So I'm a witness to his light, talking about his light, but he wants me to shine as a light or reflect his light into the darkness. Now I want you to think about this. The smallest amount of light cannot be overrun by darkness. So long as the light keeps shining, it cannot be overrun by darkness. Does that give you hope? Maybe your light isn't particularly bright, but you know what? If it's turned on at all, it can't be overrun by darkness. Think of a flashlight where the batteries are run down. Whose batteries are run down this morning? Yeah, physically. I'll, I'll, I'll assume those were the physical hands. Spiritually, that can be true too, right? Batteries get run down, but as long as the light is turned on, see, as long as you have any God sensitivity, God awareness, where you're looking, looking at him at all, the light's on, in a sense. The light of your life is on. Now, if the batteries are run down, physically or spiritually, the light's not going to be very bright, but I'll tell you what, I, I often do this because I never have fresh batteries in my flashlights. If you take a dim flashlight into complete darkness, you can still see that light. You can see that light from a long ways away. You don't have to get down about that. God wants you to be a bright light. I'm not saying, make, you know, just accept that that's, oh, I'll never be a bright light. But just also recognize that even as a dull light, as long as it's turned on at all, God can use that. Darkness cannot overrun even the faintest light. In fact, the greater the darkness, the more prominent the light becomes. You see that? See, your light might not glow that brightly if you're not in the darkest places, but the darker the places, the darker the time, the darker the spaces that you find yourself in, the brighter God's light is if you're a reflection of that light, if you're shining his light. See, he called us to go into the darkness, not to become the darkness, but to go into the darkness to do what? To illuminate it, not through our strength, but as a reflection of his light shining into those spaces and places. See, we're not of the world, but we're in the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we're no longer of the world. We're, we're of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. But he called us to go in the world so that we could proclaim and shine the light of Jesus as we're a testimony or witnesses to the light and we're a reflection of, we're shining his light. Now, some of you probably know this passage. This is directed primar primarily at Jews, Jewish people in the context of the kingdom offer, but it's a universally true principle. So the book of Matthew is a, is a book about the kingdom offer, about how the king is here, how Jesus is offering the kingdom first to the Jewish people, even the message started with them. Then after that rejection, he had the kingdom postponed. We had the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We had a intermission, if you will, that is called the church, where we have the church age, the age of Jews and Gentiles being one in Jesus Christ, grafted together, together as a body of believers, men and, there's no distinction between male and female, Jew and Gentile, bond and free. We're all one together in Jesus Christ. But without getting too much into that, that's the context of this, but the principle is a universally true principle. He's saying this, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. This was the original purpose of the nation of Israel as a whole, collectively. It's a purpose of God for each one of us individually. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. If your gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing. 
They don't take a light and they put it under a basket. If you're going to take the time to have a light, then you're going to put it on a lampstand so it can give light to all who are in the house. So what's the conclusion of that thought? That's just common sense, right? So let your light shine, so shine before men. Now how would you do that? How would they see the light of your faith? They wouldn't really see the light of your faith apart from you letting God work in your life so that your way of living, your manner of living is consistent with your internal faith and dependence on God. They can't see your internal faith and your internal dependence on God. What they can see are your good works. We shy away from talking about that sometimes because we don't want you to leave here thinking you can work your way to heaven. You can work your way into God's family. You can't. It's apart from works. But you were created unto good works that you would walk in them, that you should walk in them. Not by your own strength, not because you're focused on them, but because you're focused on him and you're letting him work through you, work in and through you, empower you by his spirit to produce a way of thinking and then a way of living that would be accompanied by what people would say is God's goodness, which is why we would call them good works, as it's accompanied by God's goodness, these things would then reflect him in their lives as his goodness, his principles, his truths would be true in your life. God wouldn't be directing you to live life in a manner that's incompatible with his goodness, with his righteousness, with his love for people. That would be coming out of you as the spirit of God was working through you. And so you think about how are you shining? Some people are like, I just shine by staying at home all the time. No, no. I just shine by never opening my mouth at all, ever, for Jesus. Probably not, but could you shine even then by consistently being a reflection of God's love and goodness, his, his grace into the lives of people around you? Yeah. But would it be as effective as the one who was living that way and then speaking about God's truth boldly, telling them, telling them about the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ? So people can see it. So the benefit to, it's the people, the benefit to people that is in mind here. But it glorifies the Father in heaven. It gives him honor and glory and praise. It makes him bigger when we're living lives in a way that are exalting him, advancing what he says is right. Living in a way that magnifies what he says is good. So it brings him glory. But the benefit to people is that they could see the light through the way we're living our lives. Now here's one other passage Philippians 2, 14 through 16, directly written to the church. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Again, there's a focus here on how you're living your life. Not because you're focused on it, but because it's important that you would be abiding in the vine so that the vine could be producing fruit in your life. So children of God without fault. Now when you're living that way, blameless and harmless, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you will be effective at what? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. That was your mission. How do you do that? By holding fast to the word of life. It's not by self-help. It's not by trying so hard. It's by depending on Jesus Christ. And then it says, so that I may rejoice. Paul says, when this happens in your life, it's going to cause me to rejoice that I haven't invested in you for nothing. I invested in you and now I see that you're allowing the Lord to produce in and through you a way of living that would bring him honor and glory. Now this involves, when you want to shine as a light, you have to be set apart and distinct from the darkness. You can't shine as a light if you're acting and going through life just as the darkness. 
So that's true positionally, that you're no longer identified with the darkness. You are all sons of light and sons of the day, 2 Thessalonians 5, 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. Positionally, that's true of you. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Positionally, that is not true of us. But this needs to be practically true in our lives too. We have to be distinct from the darkness. Isaiah 2, 5 says, O house of Jacob, now again, I mentioned the national call, the mission of the nation of Israel, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's how they were intended to live. That was how their manner of living was intended to be described as walking in the light of the Lord. Not walking in their own strength, walking in their own understanding, walking by sight, but by walking by faith. Now here we have it in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.8. You were once darkness, that was your identification, and that was how you went about living your life. But now you are light in the Lord. Positionally, you're light in the Lord. Now what should the byproduct of that be? What should the follow-up to that be? Now walk referring to your manner of living, your daily manner of living, walk in a manner that is consistent with the fact that you are a child of the light. You are no longer a child of the darkness, so live like it. Through your own strength? No. Because you're so focused on it? No. Because you're enjoying the Lord, you're trusting Him, you're depending on Him, you're letting Him work in your life so that your way of living is consistent with your position in the light as He is in the light. Now here's our verse from our, for our title here when you talk about arising and shining for the light has come. Isaiah 61, our last verse here this morning. Arise, shine for your light has come. This was always intended to be Israel's mission. This was written to the nation of Israel. This will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, but it should be true presently of every believer. Arise, shine for your light has come! Exclamation point. This is what I want you to take away here this morning. The light has come. That's a fact. The light of Jesus has come. Now what? What, what will your response to, be that, to that be? Arise and shine. That's your mission. The light is here. You're identified with that light. So arise and shine. Don't hide your light under a bushel basket. Arise and shine. Amazing verse. See, the believer walks in the Lord's light. The believer is to be a reflection of the Lord's light, working in and through him. You radiate his light, so arise and shine. Now, what do you have to take away from that? That's a decision that you have to make. You ever hear the saying, you come, you're in bed in the morning, you're little, you're tired, you're drowsy, you're laying down there, you're sleeping soundly. You don't do that anymore because you're an adult and you can't sleep anymore. You're not trusting the Lord enough. You're letting the cares of the world get into your thinking. You've got acid reflux, insomnia, all these other things. A, a dog that's always whining. I got off track again here. You were a child. You were a child sleeping soundly. And as you were sleeping soundly, what happened? Your parent came into your room and they said what? Rise and shine. Rise and shine. And you pulled the covers back over your head and they ripped the whole covers off your bed. This is childhood trauma that's just coming up. Rise and shine, right? That's the takeaway this morning, friends. Rise and shine. I don't really have to say anything more than that. Rise and shine. The light has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this awesome reminder that the light is here. That's not the issue.
the light is here. Pray that people even in our community would have hearts that are softened to being open to seeing your light. Pray that we could be used by you to be the vessels or the instruments that radiate that light, reflect that light into their lives. Pray that we would wake up, rise and shine, that we would get up out of bed, wake from our slumber, and that we would be effective at proclaiming you as a reflection of your light working in and through our lives as we stay connected to you, we're enjoying you, and we allow you